You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. We're podcasting live from CNU 26 in Savannah. For some reason, there's a vacant hall right now. I, is there something exciting going on? I don't... I, we're used to like swarms of crowds in here, absolutely swamping us. And everybody on the live stream complains about the background noise. But for some reason... All we hear are people picking up dishes and the like. There must be some headline act going on right now. Yeah, I, I'm you, not. It's you too. It's you too. Oh, you too. I missed. <laughs> uh, so all of you are not Jan Gell uh, enthusiasts uh, for some reason. That's okay. That's the that's the story. Is that the story right now? Happening here. Yeah. Okay. Um, so our, our Gail haters, because <laughs> he's so patently offensive with everything he does. Our conversation today is titled, How Relevant is Localism in an Age of Urgency? And I've, I've got with me to my, my left, immediate left, is Scott Doyen, Ben Brown, both with Placemakers, longtime friends, been on the podcast many times. We like to have you back because you're just so darn entertaining. And then Susanna, is it Dancy? Is that how I would say it? That's how it's said. Thank you. I had Susan written down, and then you said, no, it's Susanna, like old Susanna. Yep. So I won't, I won't mess that up. From Chapel Hill, yes. with the Rockwood Development, you're a partner at Rockwood Development, and you're also the chair of the board of directors of the Incremental Development Alliance. Yes, that's correct. So welcome to the Strong Towns Podcast. Thank you. My only request of all of you is that you actually have to be within like a couple inches of the like microphone. This? Otherwise, uh, I won't pick you up on the recording and no one will hear you. So let's talk about the urgency, first of all. We are constantly told how the world is becoming a flaming dumpster fire, right? In the age of presidential tweets, and proclamations in the age of climate change, in the age of, uh, you know, go through your litany of, of disasters pending. And, and there's a, a sense that amid all these disasters, the only rational response to that is to do something really big, to do something really huge. In fact, if we're not doing that, we're really not serious about things. Let's talk about that just premise at the beginning. And then I want to get into some of the specific work that you all are experiencing in doing at the local level. So how would you react, Scott, to that, that premise, that notion that let's uh, go big or go home, you know? Well, I guess my, my first question would be, is it, is it possible to do something huge in this day and age that is not riddled with equally huge distractions and division? Sure. My question would be whether or not something huge is even theoretically possible. And if it were possible, would, would it be so riddled with distraction that it would fail to do whatever it set out to do? Right, right. I interviewed Richard Florida last year, and then I interviewed Bruce Katz from Brookings Institute, who wrote a book about localism. The premise of the two of them was along those lines. Like, look, whatever your high-minded ideals are at big, at the international level or the national level, it's just not happening. Like, give it up. Start focusing at a different level of government. Is this, where, is this where we're at, Ben? I mean, are we to the point where, like, that's the conversation that is left? 
No. Okay, make the case. Uh, first of all, I just want to reject the whole premise. In the spirit of CNU. Reject the premise. I'm just going to absolutely <laughs> I, say I, yeah. I love, we're at CNU. You get to reject premises. Yeah, right. First of all, there is a sense of urgency. There's a huge sense of urgency. And it comes out of an awareness that's been created uh, by Strong Towns and your, your work, by Joe Minicosi, uh and his work especially. And that, so there is a sense of urgency. We finally are recognizing that there, this is way bigger than we ever imagined before. However, where I where I reject the premise is that, that the the automatic tendency is not to is not to say we can't do anything big. The the tendency is saying we can't do anything at all is to go hide is to duck. Sure. And and so we see that in the places where we work, we have to really tease tease out uh, an involvement and in a, a level of optimism to overcome the cynicism that nothing's going to work, that nobody's doing anything uh, important. And so so the question then becomes not so much can we default only to localism is that can we first of all do anything at all and what does that look like when we do it when we do it all so the fight i'll pick with you during this whole thing will be all about that what strong towns is enabling a lo- local only discussion sure sure let's explore that a little bit deeper i'm going to go over to Susanna in a second but you're saying it's not an either or argument it's a both argument is, am exactly. I summarizing it right? Okay. Exactly. And I suspect that deep in your heart, deep in your conservative Midwestern heart, <laughs> you actually you actually believe that. You sure. actually, you that you really hold to that. But you are so attracted to the to this libertarian leaning anti government uh-huh. conservative me. position <laughs> intellectually. Sure, sure. It's not in your heart. Right. But it's stuck between your ears. It's it's you you seen deep into my soul. I know, man. I know you. And you I realize know. that as a Minnesotan, I'm actually like a New Deal Democrat. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Like Hubert deep Humphrey, in there. you know, Hubert I'm a Humphrey Hubert. Hum- I did go to the Humphrey I Institute. So you're out. You've been out for my graduate you're, you're degree. Out of it, man. So you've. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, what I what what worries me a little bit because I think that what uh, as, and we get, we'll talk about this a little bit more that I I really think that the strong yeah. towns role. And what's happening now is so crucial and important, and that you're influencing so many people uh, that it's the best one of the best things that's happened to the movement. However, what I, I think you're doing, you, you're in danger of doing, is yeah. enabling folks who want to reject anything other than local, uh, individual, private sector uh, focused uh, uh, work, sure. and that and they're rejecting the the government's role. And it's really, I, it's really true. That, that we're not going to do anything below the, the m- most minuscule projects if we can't if we can't figure out a way to scale up what, what about Scotts and, and I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you back in for a sec because uh, I'm I don't want to take all the heat for this um, <laughs> <laughs> what about Scott's argument that like hey everything we try to do really big comes with a whole lot of baggage that is really bad and actually kind of destructive in many ways. And I I don't want to pay short shrift to what you said, paraphrase it too much, but go ahead and join him in bashing me. (laughs) I'm not uh, rejecting the value of big projects uh, in in certain instances. I'm I'm questioning the viability of that. One thing I was thinking about the most when you uh, brought up this topic is thinking in terms of need and people's need for each other. And I feel like at the community level, the more we move and people become affluent, and the more they have the luxury of being able to reject or deny that they need other people, 
you know, the more things break down. And so it's just like, I feel like there is a a community breakdown occurring that, you know, used to be that thing that could be called on to do big things. Right. And I I just don't see that resource necessarily existing uh, at this time to do big things in a way that really pushes them to their utmost possibilities. Susanna, do you want to weigh in on this at all? I know I invited you and I want you to be able to, I want to ask you about the Incremental Development Alliance. And I want to talk about some of the projects you're doing, but I think this is an interesting conversation because it really gets to the essence of kind of who we are as Americans. And I, I hear you pushing back and, and I think there's a certain amount of nostalgia in the idea that, you know, we used to be in Tom Friedman's words, we used to be a, a country who did great things together, and now we don't seem to be able to do that. Is there a consternation with that? Has something been lost? I think the answer is both are needed. Um, the challenge is that when we see we see these big projects, you, you know, we were talking a little earlier about light rail projects that were great ideas, but in implementation end up being a, perhaps less so. You have to do both. The, uh, that's the answer. That that and thinking about market products and stuff. You know that that organic milk didn't become didn't become viable until Walmart started carrying it, and they they induced demand for that. So that's at the big level. At the smaller level, the importance of local farms. So I, I mean, there are uh, it, it's both that we can't say well we're all individuals and we're all individually responsible for everything that happens in our community. And we also can't say, well, everything belongs to the federal government and they need to take care of these big problems. Right. It's working at both ends. Right. And you have to look at where you have the opportunity to make an impact. Right. Is that, do I have power over, you know, do I have power and influence at what's happening in DC or do I have power and influence over what's happening at my community design commission right. that I serve on? Um, and, and so it's both. Yeah, I think to go ahead to add to that though is exactly that is is I I presently feel you know for myself I want to devote more energy locally because I feel like that's where in this present time that's where I can actually make the most difference. Yeah. Um, but I don't necessarily think that was always the case. I think that's actually very accurate. That I think once once upon a time we did feel like we had influence over. Um, over bigger picture, over bigger goals and bigger ideals. And I think that that has eroded mm-hmm. over at least the last 20 years. The, the, that sense of my, my vote matters, my opinion matters, my economic interests matter. And that there is like this sense that multinationals are the ones who are calling the shots at every level. And so then perhaps that's where that kind of localism comes from is that, well, I can't I can't do that, right. but I can fix up this building down the street and provide a third place for people to gather. I'm having fun now. I want to bring you back in because you kind of kneecapped my premise here, and I, I think this is fascinating. I'm wondering if there's a, a generational aspect to this. The psychologists talk about the, the greatest generation as being a generation that came together in an existential crisis of a depression, of a world war. And it made them subsequently like easier to work with, like easier to work together. In other words, you could look across a political aisle and see an opposite viewpoint of yours. But because you had been through this crisis together, there's a certain binding that was there. And I think if we take that over time and we go to like the millennial generation today, there's not been really like, I mean, we could talk about 9-11 for my generation. Even that was not really more than like a temporary bonding of, 
of of Americans together. I'm uh, sorry, George Bush said, "Go shopping." That was right. his I mean, reply. That was the right. The, the sacrifice you had to make was your future credit solvency. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, are we are, are we different people? Is that is that part of it? Uh, no. Go make that no, case. No. No. And I, once again, I reject your premise. Go ahead. Uh, the uh, <laughs> if you go back to that time, if you go back to that time post-war, the people who were looking across the aisle and agreeing with one another were all old white men. Yeah, you know, we had essentially created a society in which excluded everyone but white men. I mean, when women were not, you know, were not uh, even part of the discussion in those days. So, it's pretty easy to get agreement with uh, with middle class or growing middle class white men. Uh, so we demonstrated that very well for you know for a half a century. So what we're having a struggle with now is when we uh, when our awareness increases so that we have an obligation to get more people to the table who are not exactly like us. We're struggling a little with that, you know. And as a matter of fact, that you know that we have built-in resentments, we have built-in guilt uh, for all the things we haven't done uh, before, and we are we are developing a polarized uh, society in which it's hard to get hard hard to get agreement uh, on anything because everybody has to retreat into their identity to what tribe they the, you know they belong to. So I don't I don't see a rosy past. I think the struggle's always been there and now the margins have moved to the mainstream. Well as we get more deeply into this I I want to make sure that you understand that I'm not saying you reject the local and or uh, and move to the big only is that the only way you can get big done is to demonstrate the, how the little works first, and then scale up, scale up from there. And right. what troubles that, that, me? There we have common ground. We do. I'm with we you there. we yeah. do in general. Right. However, you are allowing some of your writers, okay, uh, to <laughs> to default and almost entirely to reject, to reject. the big entirely. Yeah. You'll, we'll never get to the big. You can only do the little. Right. And you and you you like to write about complexity, which I think is a really you're introducing a lot of those concepts into the conversation right. and new urbanism, which is I think really important. But you have to remember in the in the theory of complexity, there's such a thing as regime change. That if you do a lot of little things that are disconnected and not aware of the of the elements that are the uh, the, the complex elements that are that are adapting uh, to the movement, then you get a, the the whole system flops on you. Right. Which has happened in climate change. Right. Lots that, of little things, lots of little people operating individually, making individual choices all over the world now right. are creating a a, a crisis. This feedback that, loops do a phase shift. In exactly. A yep. And that now a crisis so big. That all the local activity in the world that's dis- disconnected from one another is not going to take us to remedies for climate change. You actually read our stuff. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm impressed. I have to. I'm, um, I, and I'm and I and, I, and frequently I'm you know because we because we work really hard on our blog. Yeah. I can't imagine. I don't know what kind of you know torture you have. I think you have the, a lot of these people locked somewhere <laughs> in a room Just and you're forcing them to yeah to turn over. out this material. No, we have. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I I love to write, so it's very easy for me to put out a lot of material. But but we have you know good volunteers and people who really love it. That's probably the most coherent top down argument that I've heard, and I'm going to have to spend some time thinking about it because I think it's very interesting. The idea that I have, in a sense, 
been where I feel like Richard Florida has kind of moved. Bruce Katz has kind of moved. You see other people moving where it's like, okay, this is a disaster. We're not getting anywhere at all here. And in fact, it seems like the compromises we have to make to get something done cost us more. This was kind of your premise at the beginning, cost us more in the end than what we have any anticipation of getting back. And so it's better off to just start incrementally building with the idea that at some point you'll get to where a light rail line makes sense or you'll get to a point where a big project makes sense. But boy, we got to take care of business at the, at the local level. Well, well, let's. I think it's important to get Susanna into this conversation because my, my best example of what I'm talking about is, and one of the things that Scott and I talk about a lot in communication strategy, see if you can find the biggest little thing you can do big enough to have an influence, an impact, and, and then to inspire scaling up. I have to admit something about my word problem now with the uh, Incremental Development Alliance. There's so much Marvel comic book news, uh, movies out now that I keep, my, my mind immediately goes to the Incredible Development Alliance. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you, you picture someone with like a Captain America shield. Oh, I think yeah. we, and a we need speedo. a brand shift. Yeah. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I can't, but I, but I say it. I mean, I keep saying, I've, I've, yeah. I've said that so many. So. John Anderson in a Speedo and a cape. Uh-huh. Well, yeah. that's a scary thought. <laughs> uh, but, but I think what, I think what the, the uh, Incredible Development Alliance is doing very well yeah. is doing that biggest little thing. Right. They're saying, okay, look, identify what you can do and Susanna should talk about this but but I but but I think to their credit they're they are not abandoning the big they're saying get to the big by starting with a little but if you don't get to the big at some point, we're not, we're not going to be sufficiently addressing the problems we're really well, facing. Well, this does kind of perhaps play to that Midwestern um, self-sufficiency thing that, that the idea is that, that old school economic development is about getting that spaceship to come and land and land in your community. Because when that spaceship comes, and that spaceship might be Amazon's HQ2, might be what you're thinking the big spaceship is going to be, and it's going to come to your community, and it's going to save you. The, the reality is that spaceship is not coming, and if it comes, it's not to be your friend. It's to achieve its goals and its purposes. And I'm not picking specifically on Amazon here, it is an extractive model that is about coming in because you're the best place for them to increase their profits. If that's what you're thinking economic development, your, your city needs for economic development, you are going to be lost for a very long time. And then in fact, it is about, you know, if you, if you want them to come in and save you, they're not coming. It's up to you. You have to do the biggest small thing that you can do to build the community, to build the economics, to build, I mean, you have to work within the limitations of what that is. I mean, as much as, as oh yes, it's great to use local, you know, you wanna build a local labor force, you want to use local plumbers and carpenters and all of those things, well, you still also have to make your budgets and sometimes the labor force isn't there, so maybe we need to consider new technology. Modular construction has moved along very nicely. And you might need to do that in order to make that happen. But that doesn't mean that you're not working local to build your economy, to build your community, and to create a place that people care intensely about. Because people don't really fight for places they don't feel intensely about. We were all here in the aftermath of the housing bubble. All of us were. And we saw the abject panic amongst our colleagues who were in the development game in fairness to them, we're often playing at a high level. 
a high level that really got kind of kneecapped, not the high enough level to be the, the ones that got bailed out and got all the money, but a high enough level where they were stretched beyond where they should have been. And a lot of them suffered a lot of anguish over that. It's been fascinating to me. I think to, to both of you too, we've talked about this a little bit to watch the evolution of the incremental development Alliance from the practice of individuals to a collection of thought to now an organization out promoting this and actually creating the next generation of local builders. Can you talk just a little bit about the Incremental Development Alliance, what you all are doing and trying to accomplish, and just how things are going? As many things, it, it started with a crazy idea. The summary is that uh, John, John Anderson and Monty Anderson were both talking with folks about doing development in their own towns, and these people kept saying, well, come to our town and do your project in our town. And they said, no, 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 <laughs> we're, doing, we're doing this in our town. You need to do it in yours. And so when the organization got going, we were building a ship while sailing it, going to whatever communities were inviting us and had you know, a couple thousand dollars to put together to get us there and, and to be able to speak about it, to say, okay, here's here's where you get started. And it is about big ideas and then starting small so that you can build the skills to do it. And so now we have, uh, we have uh, two regular products, a one-day workshop and a two-day boot camp. The one-day workshops are geared towards folks who uh, want to do something but don't know where to begin. We go through performas, we go through site plan, kind of basics, we, we kind of take you through, here are the things that you need to look at from, uh, from the beginning of read your zoning code to asking for money uh, of both banks and investors. And so it's, it's taking people through that process. We find that a lot of people from the public sector end up participating, uh, planners and such, that really want to try to understand development better. And they also are asking, why aren't we getting what we want? And so then another thing that has come up in, in kind of what the organization is offering is looking at codes, doing uh, stress tests, saying, well, what is, why aren't you getting what you're wanting? Well, there, there are some themes that will be very familiar to y'all. Uh, parking requirements, setbacks, minimum lot sizes, buffers between uses, you know, kind of some of those things that the new urbanists, that new urbanism has been pointing to as problems for a long time. And so it's through that kind of ground truthing of that that we're able to work with cities that are saying, oh, well, maybe we could change that. Right. And, and so that's where lots of small action starts to create that sea change that you're talking, that you've used as the example with climate change, that, that cities are finally, towns and cities are finally kind of getting to the point of saying, oh, so if we change the rules, we might get a better product? Imagine that. Right. That kind of gets at the, the heart of where I am with this. And... And that is the sense that, you know, in building incrementally, you're not just building structures or places, you're building relationships, you're building trust. And that becomes the basis, I think, for more sustainable change over time. When you think about top-down, you know, most people probably remember when Al Gore rolled out a livable communities type agenda. And, you know, coming from the top-down, you know, the reception to it was entirely rooted in where you stood politically or how you felt about Al Gore. So, like, you know, everybody within smart growth and new urbanism is like, finally, leadership as it relates to communities and everybody, uh, you know. On the All my friends. Of, right. I'm feeding into your, uh, <laughs> your characterization um, of me now. <laughs> but getting to what uh, Suzanne was talking about is uh, when this is happening, one 
uh, one guy and then one group and then one community at a time, you know, then suddenly talk of these solutions isn't something that's, well, that's being imposed on I, communities. It's, it's bubbling up. Yeah. I, can, I can give a great example of that. You know, very often we know that with urbanism, one of the greater challenges is the character of the streets that we're, that we're dealing with thanks to DOTs. Columbus, Georgia was one of the communities that uh, we had gotten a, a Knight Foundation grant to go in and work with an economic development corporation in a particular area that that had some underinvestment, a particular area of town. And one of the things that was ide- identified was that the urban form of the Main Street urban form was was still somewhat intact. I mean, it had parking lots, you know, kind of pocket, you know, the missing teeth along their their street. An opportunity for improvement was well, what about on street parking? It, it took an enormous amount of local. We did a, a, a test project. John and, and some others just did some basic test project where they, they were piloting on street parking. It was branded, this is a test, only a test, don't get alarmed. <laughs> it, it's just pain. It can be undone if it causes a disaster. Well, of course it didn't. It worked well. They then um, improved the drawings a bit. I think that recall who's walking in had something to do with that. The reason that the change got passed was because Will Bergen, who's a local property owner and owns little strip shopping centers like I do and tries to make them better, he spent a lot of time and energy going person by person on the on the town council or the city council saying, here is why this is good for us. This is here is why this will work. And so that happened because of that trust that existed within that community. And, and that's the way that 13th Street ended up with on-street parking. Of course, I went back to Chapel Hill and said, hey, friends in City Hall, you know Martin Luther King Drive that we is posted 35 miles an hour, but nobody drives less than 50 unless a cop is sitting there, and how we've had three pedestrian deaths on that road this year? Have we thought about doing a test project? They're doing it in Georgia. Don't you think we could do that in North Carolina? It's by having the local examples that people can then, that we can point to, that Strong Towns points to, that says here is how you can make a small change in your community that has a big impact, and then giving the opportunity for others to, to see it and imitate it. Right, and, and imagine if, uh, you know, the, the federal government suddenly came out and said, uh, you know, your, your streets and your town will be revised in these ways. Or whether Amazon ended up in your town and said, you know, we need to be accommodated in these ways with these street changes. The net result would be the same, but the public response would be very, very different. Mm-hmm. I don't know that that's necessarily true. I don't true. know if that's true either. I just let it slide because okay. I'm like, uh, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a valid point. We could argue it, but I, I, I would have a problem with both personally. I don't know as everybody would. But uh, I get what you're saying. No, I, my, my point is is that uh, uh, you know Will Bergen in uh, Columbus or uh, something you're doing in Chapel Hill or whatnot. It's the trust factor mm-hmm. that she was right. talking about. That's right. what I'm talking about. Oh, you're about. saying yeah, the yeah, trust yeah. doesn't exist; it coming from right. The top I'm saying down. It, it's like if, okay. if it was government, if it was the federal government right. imposed, or if it was Amazon corporate pressure imposed, well, or whatever, people would be right. like, "How dare you I, tell us that I, our I hear community?" You, I follow level, you there. Yeah. Even though the net result would be. A better street, right? Um, right. Yes, but wouldn't it be a whole lot easier to get some some policy that says if federal funds are going into this road, its design speed needs to match its posted speed? Oh, absolutely. But you're getting into nuance now. Yeah. And, and but but things, I'm saying the public's not going to pay attention to that in the same right, way. That's that, the nuance. Yeah. Right. Right. You I, can get policy change uh, that benefits good local works 
that doesn't have nearly the visibility and the uh, the sort of uh, shock and awe that a big rollout program would have. Right. I want to get back to complexity and ask Ben a follow-up question. One of our mutual friends, Ian Rasmussen, a few years ago pointed out to me, he, he, he gave a criticism of CNU. He said, CNU tends to focus on buildings and building form, but not actually what is going on inside them. He pointed out Baltimore to me. He goes, if, if, if CNU's premise was correct, all these neighborhoods of Baltimore that are having all this disinvestment should be fine because they've got great form. Ian is a provocateur and, and, and likes to make the grand statement. I feel CNU has changed and evolved over the years to ask deeper questions and, and, and more complex questions and try to get into some of the complexity that drives change. Do we have the right people here at the table in the conversation? Is there a need for, and I'll give an example from the conversation I just had with the Urban Three people, is there a need for like cognitive scientists here and people who actually deal with like human behavior and why we are these slightly evolved chimpanzees having very tribal behavior? Sure. I mean, I think it's, a, it's, it's one of the ways we understand better uh, why things are going wrong, why we default to these tribal, uh, these tribal perspectives. Recognizing those biases doesn't mean that we automatically dispense with them because uh, they're, they're, they're really kind of wired in. It just means that we recognize them and we sort of call attention to them when we, we recognize them in ourselves as well as others. Mm-hmm. Right. I've wanted to get to the local work that, that you're doing as well. Your city has been one of these that's been talked about a lot. In one of the earlier presentations, someone said how great it was. And then there was a pushback. They might have been quoting you actually saying, like, this has taken decades to get to this point. I want you to talk about that because I feel like I'm in the early stages in my own community with this, where there's starting to be a slight awakening and I'm feeling less like a voice in the wilderness and more like at the beginning of kind of like a wave of people who are stepping up and doing things. You've lived through that and you've been the frustrated person. You've also been the, the kind of the person who can sit in it, a place of success and go, wow, this has grown way beyond me and it's fun to be here. Can you just talk a little bit about that evolution and some of the things that that took to happen? Uh, sure. Um, I, we had a session on it yesterday, so a lot of these thoughts. Maybe, maybe that's how I'm getting right some of that buzz. <laughs> but uh, uh, the town that Chuck is talking about, Decatur, Georgia, there's a, a lot of uh, typical things that you would expect in a small southern town. Um, that historically happened in Decatur, Georgia, uh, in terms of a downtown neighborhood that through a new urbanist eyes you would see as a functioning neighborhood. Certainly, uh, it was the heart of the African-American community in Decatur. It was downtown, uh, not just adjacent, but integrated. It was part, it's a downtown neighborhood. And, uh, you know, not a wealthy community, uh, but if you were to examine that community, you would find economics at all levels within it. There was prosperous, kind of very politically active members of the community, and there was poorer communities, and there was housing types that accommodated all of them, and there was black-owned businesses, and and, uh, there was uh, community church, and, you know, all the sort of organs of community existed there. And then, like many places, uh, it all got dismantled for urban renewal and got replaced just uh, with kind of, you know, single-use housing blocks uh, and went from being not a government-associated project to being, you know, government housing. And all of those residents, or many of them, and uh, along with residents where this was happening in Atlanta or whatnot, moved into uh, adjacent 
neighborhoods. My indicator was just to the other side of the tracks, the south side of the tracks, uh, which kicked off white flight and the whole em- neighborhood emptied out and all these problems. And that was kind of the context when we get to the 70s where the town is emptying out, massive disinvestment, uh, and then MARTA uh, was building out heavy rail at the time. Uh, and so in who, what w- who is she? <laughs> the MARTA heavy rail. Yeah. Uh, and... <laughs> The, oh, I've been on it. It's heavy. <laughs> extremely. Yeah. Um, you, know, you know, today we, we're a tiny city, but we have three rail stations, which is seen as a big plus in our region. But at the time, there was a lot of speculation as to, you know, there was, there was people who were, who were boosters to such a degree that when you look back on it now, you're like, that's funny. But uh, the decision was made. Uh, MARTA came out the rail corridor from Atlanta. But when it gets to Decatur, it deviates from the rail corridor so that it can go under the square. In doing that, they had to basically destroy a huge chunk of downtown, dig it all up, put the MARTA in. Uh, so like already struggling downtown businesses, uh, you know, it's like an extra nail in the coffin. Uh, and so like all of those factors coming together was like the timing was right for people to be like, oh, we really need to do something because this town is in serious trouble. Uh, and that kicked off the uh, community planning process that then went through a lot of things uh, because these were baby boomers leading this. So uh, particularly the Main Street program was kind of the big, the big impetus behind the whole thing through a bunch of steps that I'd be happy to get into later. You know, in, in over a 25-year period, they turned the town around. And the biggest thing that has come out of that, I think oftentimes people, and it gets back to my thing about needing each other and being willing to work together towards shared goals when you recognize you need each other. One of the things I think people in their mind, whether they ever voice it or not, is that, well, we're going to set out for these goals, and when we get to them, we're done. We're going to be fine. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, but you don't. You get to them, and it, and it keeps going, and then all of your goals become your problems. And, and so now, you know, in Decatur, you can't buy a quarter-acre piece of dirt to put a house on for less than $400,000. And, uh, you know, this is coming from me who moved there 22 years ago and bought my house for like just over a hundred grand. So, uh, you know, now people look at every historic house as just a teardown opportunity and, you know, all the things that comes with it. So now every builder builds to the max of their envelope and all the houses uh, are as big as they can be. So therefore they're as well appointed as they can be. And therefore they sell to the you know, to only highly affluent buyers. So it's, there's a whole rippling effect that's coming out of our success. And now, now all of the things that constituted success are snowballing into the challenges that we face today. I hear a little bit in the story, what I hear in a lot of such things, which is we essentially hit rock bottom at a point, or we got to a point where we had to deal with something and we couldn't put it off. You kind of threw the libertarian word at me earlier in our conversation, which I, you, you, can, you can throw around epitaphs, that's fine. You and I drove through Tampa, and we drove some of the worst roads around. And we looked out, and we both kind of concurrently said, like, what do you do here? How do you fix this? A true libertarian would say, well, let it fail. Like, that's what happens when you do really stupid things. I think Decatur was on the edge of failing, Right. And essentially, it was revived by people who cared, people who loved the place, people who wanted to see it prosper. No one's going to love the Strode environment ever. Right, like it's, right. that's, There's no chance that that's going to happen because the owner of that crappy strip mall and the owner of that failed uh, franchise 
whatever are not going to get together and put in the capital it would take to revive that place. Where do we get to when we're a nation full of those kind of places? And the ability to kind of do top-down transformation is, is either gone or just not viable at the scale we need it. Do those places just fail? And are we okay with that? Is that acceptable? Well, I think, uh, well, I'll turn it back on you. Please. That's uh, what you've been doing. Because yeah. <laughs> uh, well, this is the Ben Brown podcast. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so the, uh, that strode you're talking about is Dale Mabry Highway. The Wall Street Journal called it the worst road in America at one point. And it really <laughs> is the ugliest place I've ever been yeah. anywhere. Yeah. And it's, but it's lined with a lot of successful businesses, temporarily successful businesses that some other temporarily successful business goes into. What's required is at such a high scale that we have lost the ability to think, to, to trust one another, to trust processes that would get us to the point where we can attack something at that scale. So that's my, I mean, that's at the core of the problem of, the, of you, the, where you and I may uh, have a... Because you a could not fix that problem incrementally. Exactly. I, and I would agree with that. Like, we, we're not going to go out there and hope that by, with straw bales and paint, that somehow we can create a revival that will change that around. Decatur had good DNA for that. Right. Uh, it, it did. And Ben just saying that just made me think of one other thing uh, that kind of ties back to, I think, where I started in this whole thing. And that is at the time Decatur started turning things around, late 70s, early 80s, you know, there was generations of people in Decatur. You know, they, these, these people were deeply connected and tied to each other and to the place. Right. And so it gets back to that whole trust factor. Right. Some of the problems that we're facing today affordability, diverse, loss of diversity, et cetera, you know, we have all, a lot of newcomers, affluent newcomers, who feel like they bought into something and they wanted to retain what they paid for. And that trust does not exist anymore. These, you know, that longstanding commitment to the place and to each other is not in place. So politically, it's a harder fight now to make changes for collective benefit than it was then. You, you all weren't there together during the war. And so <laughs> now you're not, I'm going back to my original analogy. Now you're not, uh, you don't have this shared thing that you've lived through. And so now it's harder to create that sense of community. Well, we've, all, we've also trained our people, um, forgive me for interrupting. No, you're but, great. Oh, that's good. Um, we, we have also trained our public that they are consumers of community as opposed to members of community or builders of community. I live in a lovely new urbanist neighborhood, and I am amazed at the number. I moved there when my daughter was in uh, first grade. She's now a senior in college. It was a great place for, to watch my kids grow up, and I'm amazed at how many of my children's peers, that their families are saying, okay, done, and moving on to the next place that is where taxes are lower, where things are less. And so it was easy to move into this community as a consumer because everything was there. You know, you have your house, your porch, your neighbors, kids the same age, friends for your, you know. And, and so we have trained our public to be consumers of society rather than participants in it. And I think that that gets to the, to the fundamentals of why aren't they fighting for the things they care about or why don't they want to see change why as soon as they move to community, nothing else can change. Because right. this is what they bought. This is, and therefore, the next person who comes in is going to try to 
hold it at that location. And when you have that happen over, you know, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and you have the, the economic pressures that are going on, everybody turns into a NIMBY even when they, when what the, the ideals that they profess are completely at odds with the behavior that they are exhibiting in their, in their community. I call it the, uh, the shift of community from survival mechanism to uh, purchased amenity. You know, affluent people who are coming into urban places now, you know, they don't, they don't view community as a survival mechanism, as a way to, you know, it, it, it doesn't function the same way. They tend to, you know, they tend in many cases to purchase the services they need, right. their landscaping, their child care, you know, et cetera, et cetera, which all used to be things uh, that were one of the benefits of community. I think about even the carpooling conundrum that we've experienced this year, my wife and I, the kids now go to the school way out in the middle of nowhere, because that's what my school district did to the, the middle school. And they have to, after school, go to dance. So it's a 15 minute ride. There's no bus, of course, because that would be a service the school district would, you know, not be able to provide, even though there's like 50 kids that go from there to there. We have to go out and pick up the kids and then drive them to this thing. So it's like a, an hour hole in your day for, for no good reason, just to bring them there and give them a snack on the way. And one of the things is like you carpool with people, right? And my wife is really angry with me because my vehicle will only fit four people. It was not, it's, just, it's not one of these family vans. I can't fit eight kids. And so our like pool of people we can work with has to have like one other child. <laughs> uh, it has to be some, you know, but there's this kind of reciprocal nature to it. You can't be the one asking for the carpool all the time. You've got to provide it too. And because there's no real like gathering place except at dance shows or dance, you know, performances, you don't get to meet the parents as much because they just drive in now and drop their kid off. When you were younger, you used to all hang out in there and watch them. Now they don't want you to watch them because they're too old for that. So it, it really is kind of stifled as like new kids have rotated in and out. And some of the old friends we had that were used to carpool, their kids don't do it anymore, finding that new set of, of relationships. And it's really because of that environment and the way it's set up. And it, it's, it's kind of changed our relationship with dance and with dance families and with my kids' uh, chosen activities. I want to... Uh, let people here know that, that part of this conversation is for you to ask questions. So if anybody here has a question they would like to ask, this is CNU. I will ask you to actually come up and ask a question as opposed to do your own like eight minute monologue. If you do have a question you would like to ask, please come and sit right here. And as we go on, I will just switch places with you and you can introduce yourself, who you are, where you're from, and, uh, and ask your question. Have any of you read Arlie Rothschild's book, The Strangers in Their Own Land? It came out about the time of the uh, Hillbilly Elegy book, which I think was kind of like a less academic version of Strangers in Their Own Land. Strangers in Their Own Land, this uh, sociologist from Berkeley went and essentially, I think she even used the word embedded. She went and lived in the reddest part of Louisiana. And her goal was to create what she called an empathy bridge. How can I not in a patronizing way, but in a deep understanding way, try to share an understanding of a life that I don't understand at all? That's very foreign to me. I was going to like give this reference to, to Ben because I'm 
I feel like him and I are uh, antagonistic with each other today in a friendly way. One of the most powerful things of this was when she went through what she called the backstory of what was for her like a Berkeley backstory and what for the deep conservative Louisiana was a backstory and how very different they were. And it was basically like a backstory for how you explain what's going on in the world. And the, the one in Berkeley, let me start with the one in Louisiana. The one in Louisiana was, I have worked very hard. My family's worked hard. We do the right thing. We follow the rules. And then we get to like the place we're supposed to be for following the rules and doing this. And there's other people who are cutting in line and other people who are getting to not do that to get to where we're at. And so my story is one of like frustration because I can't make things you know work. To me, the fascinating one was the, the one that was maybe more foreign to me, and that was the Berkeley one. And the Berkeley backstory was, we're all in a circle, holding hands. We've created something together. We're all celebrating it. We all have kind of worked together to, to build this thing. And now certain interlopers come in and try to take part of it for themselves and tear it down and rip it apart. It was very, I think, transformative for me to sit and ponder that backstory, because that's not my backstory. That's not the way I would describe it. But to hear someone else describe it in that way was very interesting. I feel like you've essentially described here a little bit like that Berkeley backstory as the backstory of what not only America was, but what America should be and needs to be. Am I going too far off on a tangent for you or is this uh yes i am yeah. okay correct me for the third time uh, yeah uh, and, and, if, and if, you know i love you right i know you do no I we're mean, very I mean, I, we're very I, we're good friends one of our blog one of the blogs i wrote last year was that when i was worried about you descending into depression <laughs> yeah i remember that one, one. <laughs> the, the, the lead sentence was chuck marone needs a hug yeah i remember right? that so you know i'm sympathetic right? yeah, i know yeah all right so, uh, so I, I, I think, I mean, this goes back to your question earlier about, uh, about the cognitive science and, and understanding more about how we, how we build our stories about ourselves, the, the backstories we create ourselves. And so essentially we're always, we're, we're, we're making a movie in our heads all the time and casting it with other, with other people. We're casting it with villains and we're casting it with heroes and, and with other folks. And most, and most of us, do that, it, it comes subconsciously. Maybe it's even built into the software of, you know, of human beings. It's important to kind of understand that's what we're doing all the time as, a, as opposed to realizing that's really what's going on you know, outside of this. But, but that issue of trying to better understand other people's backstories is key, certainly key to what Scott and I are very concerned with is how to tell stories, meaningful stories, that motivate people to do meaningful actions in their communities. So... You can recognize and accept and empathize with, with people, but you have to figure out some way to get to a point where people with different backstories can join together to do something that provides benefit to all of them. And in, in, in the, the hard thing about that is that you're, ha you're going to deal with the perception of loss for each one of those people with those backstories. It is really true in these communities where people bought in at a certain level and, and counting on their, their, 
their wealth position uh, to be increased by their property values. And it's, so it's very understandable that they get freaked out when things happen that they think is going to threaten their property values. So that's, that's, that's understandable. It just interferes with the discussion that you begin. You have to have to get to, to talk about the rewards that happen for the commons, for you know, for the common good. Right. So once again, I think where you and I want to have a, a, a an argument, although we, we sympathize a highly. Friendly with, dis, a friendly, Minnesota well, kind of actually, discussion. Actually, I think right? you know, basically, we, we're we're both we're, we're well. You're a better person than I am. I'll give you that. <laughs> Which, so yeah. I have a. I have a little more. I, I'm trying to learn the more uh, uh, to be a better person. I'm more concerned about how do how do I how do I motivate people to do something different, and I think that where we we are the same is that we have to that we is that basic understanding that we have to acknowledge that those backstories. It's just that the question for me always is how do we move how do we move them off of a backstory that complicates the their own lives. In the future, that happens in Louisiana. That's happened, you know. That happens with, with with people. I lived for 20 years in a rural area in Western North Carolina, one of the most remote regions. And and I've watched and I watched people move into a political status that was going to make it impossible for their children to return home and live in the in their areas. They essentially banned their children because of the decisions they made with, with land policy. And so they were protecting, you know, they were protecting their identity. And, and I was empathetic to that, understood where it was coming from. But they essentially made decisions that have ramifications that has kept their children and their grandchildren from returning. Right. Well, I think the Susanna. thing you're touching on is that uh, earlier at one of, the, one of the sessions, somebody said, you know, you don't bring facts to a feeling fight. <laughs> well that's a that's is that john anderson yeah, john that's really good yeah uh, i like yeah uh, well it was perhaps someone repeating john anderson but yeah, but right. regardless that it's it's our feelings that motivate us to action it's not facts facts are just well you got your facts i got my facts which ones are we gonna you know battle on uh, which you know is it ironic in the statement but anyway it's it's about those those feelings that are coming there's a another guy at Berkeley I can't remember his name who talks about worldview and and the way that that you're you're viewing your world through either a strong father or nurturing mother framework and that those frameworks um, determine how we hear the messages that we're hearing and so I've wondered whether that was the framework of those two of the two individuals in the previous book we were talking about that is one a strong father framework and the other a nurturing mother and I think it's uh, to have the conversation we need to be talking about what what values are we bringing to this and I, I I bring a value of opportunity of one of we you know we're in this together we take care you know we're we all do better if we work together but if we can't if we can't ultimately get at that level it doesn't matter what the facts are uh, because that's not that's not why Western North Carolina whatever community you were living in made the choices that they that they made, they made those choices because they felt threatened, and um, and people feel threatened by property value, or you know that oh that's going to ruin my property values or whatever. And those feelings are what motivate them to do things. It's not the fact that uh, by the edge of Duke's East Campus, it's full of mis missing middle housing, and that's the most valuable neighborhood in the in all of Durham. Hi, I'm Kyle Grip. I am a alderman from the city of Davenport, Iowa. And we have uh, 
we've got a really nice urban core, and then uh, most of our town is uh, kind of suburban residential. And we have done a really great job of rejuvenating our downtown, and now we're moving into the neighborhoods and we're trying to take back our urban fabric, and I think we're going to be successful with that, and, and most of the community is on board with it. Um, but out in the suburban neighborhoods, I've been trying to implement strong town principles, and uh, they're met with a lot of resistance, and oftentimes they're kind of uh, uh, contorted so that uh, when you actually implement them, uh, they are not strong town principles. They're not uh, saving you money. Um, an example would be uh, we try to put in bike lanes um, uh, through through some of these neighborhoods, and what it turned into was, yeah, uh, multimodal transportation is good, but we, what we'd rather have is shared use paths on the side, and they come in at about the same cost as a road. Um, so my question for you is, um, should I focus my attention on the urban core where there is least resistance, and we're going to get big results? Um, continue or continue to fight in the suburbs to implement these things, uh, or just leave that alone and or, or do both. And Davenport, by the way, cool place. So thank you for being here. Please. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's a, it's all it's one of those kind of all the above. Uh, I knew answers. you were going to say that. Yeah, and and one of the one of the problems is that do um, everything. Yeah, yeah, but the, but then the, then the secret is what's the strategy to get to all the above? Okay. okay? And so your strategy is to abandon the big stuff. <laughs> and my strategy is to say, do the smallest little thing that leads you to the big stuff. That is, pick out some project that you can do to demonstrate the value of it to the suburban folks. Uh, so that you can say, see, we told you this would be good. We did it. And now you, you're getting the benefits from that. Can we, do, can we think a little bigger now to do something a little bit more that will also uh, uh, provide value for it. You know, you could understand what, what they've been trained, you know, as Susanna says, to, to value their uh, suburban uh, life as a commodity. And that, that anything you do to, inter to change that depreciates their investment. But if you give them something of value that they can identify and say, okay, I see how this works. Uh, and that was, the, that was the sort of thing I was waiting for Scott to mention that uh, we worked on a strategic plan in Decatur uh, and the cool thing that I found, thought about, uh, found about that, that, that um, began to slightly dent my cynicism, was that we came on the on the scene to do the strategic plan after was there three iterations before before we did it? Uh, yeah. There were three iterations of strategic plans, and so what Decatur had done is gathered an extensive public you know public involvement effort, like everybody does, visioning, and they had they had arrived at a to do list for the next ten years, and when they came out for the next 10 year strategic plan, they had worked diligently to do as many of those things they promised to do on that strategic planning list. And I think they, I think they did like 80%. And then they, they had another 10% in the works. Their introductory presentation to the public process at the second 10 year plan was, you told us you wanted this, we did this, and now, and now we want to ask you if we can move on and do another set of things. So they, then the second plan did the same thing. So we're going to build on this, and each time, more ambition, bigger, wi you know, wider, more comprehensive. And it's, by the time we got there, it was the easiest public process we'd ever had. It was a celebration of our next stage of, of thinking bigger, being more ambitious, doing the things. It was because the, the trust in that, the trust between the city government 
and the and the uh, and their constituents was so strong that when the elected officials said, "Trust us, we're going to do this," then uh, they, they they could believe that they could believe it could happen. So I, I have go a, ahead. a much shorter answer for you. Good, because I would appreciate. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> go where you get a win. Wherever you can get a win, that's where you do it, and then. It becomes it becomes an example of of this is going to be my pushback places. too because I, I feel like you know I, ten year I, plans I, I've got no patience. I for see those. a guy who's got a finite amount of energy, not because he's he's you know, but because he's human, and the community has a finite amount of energy. At some point, don't we stop like banging our heads against the wall trying to bring that strode we were on in Tampa back and just say you know. I'm the apostle. I may have to go where the converts are, not where the uh, heathens are, you know? Are, are you asking for another hug? Yeah, I am. <laughs> so, go ahead. Hi, my name is Walter Clapp. I'm from Red Lodge, Montana, actually. Um, my question is about um, experts. And y'all mentioned earlier the need maybe for neuroscientists or psychologists to be here. And I, I guess maybe a good uh, stand in for that because they may not want to come is uh, is books and so I, I I'm I'm new to the to your podcast and I'm wondering if y'all have covered um, Scale by Jeffrey West or Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman they both seem like good resources that fit in uh, with what you're talking about uh, yes we ha- we have uh, Thinking Fast and Slow was an inspiration for some of our blog work and also Jonathan Haidt out of Duke is a is it has a NYU. A, NYU. Yep. He has a great, The Righteous Mind is a spectacular book about that. And he gets really down. He he has very useful suggestions for people who work in planning and how to frame uh, discussions and recognizing the bias that's built in to all of us. So uh, you're right to to say that we don't have to actually have the people here because they've done the hard work of doing the research for us if we just read the the material. I, I feel like there's a trifecta that affected me in a huge way. And it was it was the righteous mind, Jonathan Haidt. It was thinking fast and slow, the Daniel Kahneman book. And then for me, it actually started with the Big Sort, uh, which was Bill Bishop, that talked about how we have uh, self-sorted into essentially lifestyle enclaves around the country. It presented it in a way that, for me, the rural Minnesotan, because it came out in like 2004, was not like threatening in the way that, uh, you know, some other conversations were. It's like, I went to this city, this neighborhood looked nice, so I moved there. Lo and behold, everybody there thinks like me. Uh, I went, you know, I went to that neighborhood, they had like gun racks on the back of their car and like, you know, pro uh, troop signs, and it wasn't my kind of neighborhood. And lo and behold, like those people don't think like me. It was like those subliminal signals. Well, that's that um, consumer that that's the yeah, consumer yeah, yeah. sorting yeah. of of us as as individuals that right. that um that in if, the biz we call it audience segmentation. But when you do it as a community, it changes like the whole thing. I'm getting the kill switch sign meaning they have a book signing coming in here in a couple minutes. So we're going to have to move on. Thank you for the question. Thank you for the other question. Thank you to our guests. Thanks for pushing me a little bit. I, I do, I do appreciate it. I know you are. And maybe afterwards I can get that hug <laughs> that I need. Thanks everybody for listening. Let's show these guys some generosity with our, uh, for their time. Thanks for listening and keep doing what you can to build strong towns. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. 
Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.